Welcome to our sixth lesson of our study of the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 9 today, and we're looking at the first book of the Bible, and we get to the story of Noah, and we discussed in chapter 6 through 8 in a previous episode how um, the story of the flood and how Noah and his family built an ark, and they were the ones to... Uh, survive. He and his family are the only ones who survive God's judgment on the world as he brings water uh, to such an extent that it covered up every mountain in the world and he brings an end to that stage of man's wickedness and coming out of that we see God make a covenant with Noah and it's a very meaningful covenant going forward there's some need for assurance here uh, the world is forever changed because of the experience known as family have just been through and that sheds some light on some of the things that we see mentioned here as we get into genesis chapter 9 as god makes this covenant with noah this agreement on how things are going to be moving forward as he deals with the survivors of the ark and a reset, if you will, on creation. So we're going to take a look at that here. So today we're going to look at God's commands for the survivors of the ark, and then the covenant he makes with them in the following verses. And that covers, I think, all of chapter 9. Um, so we look at some things here first question I want you to have in mind is if Noah's family was given a fresh start I mean you know how is it you know that the world is different it turns out to be different in several different ways even though some things go on as they did before and why did God need to provide those reassurances and then what is the actual meaning as we get to the symbol God gives them the rainbow in the sky does it mean we can sin and just get away with it or does it mean something else what is what is the purpose of this symbol that appears in the air and, and one thing as we get to that is to remember before the flood rainfall was not a regular thing on the earth that we have a description that dew rose from the ground to water the plants so understand that rainfall essentially was introduced in the rainfall that flooded and destroyed the world so um, God is kind of setting the stage for it's going to rain again but it's going to be a different kind of rain and so God is kind of establishing the new parameters going forward with Noah so keep that in mind as we see this discussion that they have So today we're going to talk about this new covenant and we'll look at four aspects of it and we'll see that uh, a lot of things are new a lot of things need to be new moving forward and there's a, a surprisingly deep change in the way god is dealing with the world moving forward so let's look at verses one through three God blessed Noah and his son, said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The earth and the terror, terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority, 
Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. So we do see some changes here. We see some changes, but one thing that is renewed is the charge to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. This is parallel to what God told in Genesis chapter 1. He told Adam and Eve to do the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God's giving the same charge to Noah. Although God was unhappy with the behavior of mankind prior to the flood, he is giving a second chance here. He is saying, I do want you to live and thrive and fill the earth. We're going to try this again. Some things will be different, but God's purpose for the world to be populated, it continues. Now, the big difference here that we see is the relationship between man and the animals. That before, man and the animals were perhaps somewhat of a harmonious creation, although there may have been some tension there. there the earth was certainly under a curse that raising vegetation was going to be hard work. You don't really have a lot of information of any kind of tension or conflict between man and animal. In those early chapters, nothing that comes to my mind that I remember reading there. But we do see now suddenly that the animals become man's prey. Prior to this time, men were generally vegetarians. Now God has permission, God given permission to hunt and eat animals for food. So there's a Perhaps a decrease in harmony. It's not really spoken of in the first few chapters, but we don't. We do see animal skins being used as clothes. God provided them for Adam and Eve. Um, we do see Abel giving animal sacrifices. Um, but this is the first time that it's mentioned that animals are to be a food source, and so it does change the relationship of things. And that is notable here in verse 3. All right, so now everything is on the menu. Plants and animals can be food. It's sanctioned clearly from this point forward. Now, as you go back for a moment and look at verse, uh, chapter 6, I should say, a couple of verses come to mind here. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. That's what God said back in verse 3 of chapter 6. We do see after the flood a steep decline in the lifespans. And we see that pretty soon, although we've had men living for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, that tapers off. Not immediately, but a couple of generations after the flood, we see that men have a hard time getting past that 120 mark. So that may be part of what God was saying in chapter 6. Also, it could have been a timeline for, um, I'm giving you another 120 years and I'm going to send a flood. So there's a couple of ways to interpret that back in chapter 6. But we do see post-flood a steep decline. And we no longer see men living more than 200 years 
after a while. We still have some that are going to live a long time. Um, as we get into the story of, of chapter 12, we see we still have long timelines, but there's a steady decrease. Something has changed, and that um, may have something to do with the flood itself. Um, some speculation that you know the water, you know, where did the water come from from the flood? Did God have that already in storage? Was that in the atmosphere? Was it blocking UV rays and um, enabling longer lifespans? Unclear. But that's part of the creation we, we see, uh, the change in creation that we see. Also, back in verse 5 of chapter 6, we saw that God had, as much as God ever can have regret, expressing some form of regret. He says, I'm sorry that I have made them. And that's a reaction to the weakness of man. He, he's not sorry about man, but he's sorry about the extent of the wickedness of man and how far it had gotten in the days of Noah and the just the continual evil mentioned in verse 5. And that's when God stepped in into judgment. And this is not to say God was surprised at this, but God was sad to see it. Even though he knew that God had free will, he knew from the garden that 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 knowledge of good and evil was there and that because of free will bad choices would be made and that men would be sinners from then on god is not surprised at this but god was very very much upset about this and this is why god sends judgment and it was at that point except for noah and his family it was a worldwide judgment where god kind of hits the reset button with noah's family but we are going to contrast this to the covenant with Noah and see God is beginning to begin to go to towards a, a path of redemption and B, an individualized judgment as he deals with the world. And as he reveals his ultimate plan of redemption, that's going to end in the cross and the Messiah. So we begin to see this journey towards uh, an individual judgment. Although we do see a little bit in Noah's life because Noah found uh, favor in the eyes of the Lord, but it becomes more, God reveals more and more of his redemptive will. But again, God's wiping out of everything that wasn't on the ark. Uh, some plants obviously survived, but the animal life, this is part of the backdrop we have to be aware of, that Noah and his family realize they're the only survivors and they see what God has done to the to the ones who uh, were not taken on the ark and the men who weren't interested perhaps in being on the ark who laughed at the thought that the world was going to be destroyed. Um, so it's a very sobering reality. But again, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We see that in verse 8 of chapter 6. So he has been saved from this judgment and becomes the first picture of God's redemption. A picture that, as we go through the story of Genesis, is expanded on and helps us to understand how God is not going to tolerate sin, but he is going to provide a path for those who want to be saved out of their sin. So new relationships beginning to be formed. Man now aware of God's judgment and trying to relate to a God who doesn't tolerate sin and who judges it with justice and without excuse and also new relationship between man and the creation itself 
So let's move on to verse 4 through 7. Because in this new relationship, we see that God has some new restrictions. Meat's now on the menu, and God does have a requirement. You are not to eat the blood of the animals that you consume. So you can eat meat, but you cannot eat that still has the blood in it. In fact, this not only is a requirement for eating, but let's look at, let's read the verses together first. So however, you must not eat meat with the lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth, and multiply on it. So we see in verse 7, again, a repeat. For the second time, God recommissions Noah and his family to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So again, God is saying, I have hit the reset button. I have judged the world, but I intend for the world to flourish once again. And you're going to see kind of a theme of reassurance here. Some things are different, but there is reassurance that God wants the world to continue, that God is not out to destroy the world but god is giving the world another chance because he wants the world to uh, again to flourish but going back to first of all blood being a symbol of life that blood is is a key to a creature's life and god is taking that as you need to treat that blood with respect and so not only with the animals don't eat the blood with the meat you have to drain the blood then you can cook the meat also, we see God giving a very, very firm threat, a very, very firm penalty for anyone who would murder a human. And saying now, and this is a little different than the way he treated Cain, we'll notice, if you murder a fellow human, then your life is, your life is, um, what's the word for it? Um, you, you give up your life. You, 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 have to, you have to surrender it. You have to pay with your life for murdering another human. Now, murder is intentional killing. And that is what Cain did to Abel. He did it intentionally. But your life is void if you kill another person's life. In other words, God is saying, from this point forward, I am sanctioning capital punishment for a murder. And that is the way it ended up in the Jewish law. If you look at Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 12, you see that your life is to be taken from you if you have taken intentionally the life of another. And there were the cities of refuge in the case that someone, and we'll take a look at that in a moment, you know, but there, there's a, there was a, a distinction to be made. The reason people were to flee the city of refuge was so the trial could be held so they could determine if it was intentional. If it was an intentional, that person was to be put to death. If it wasn't, then that person was to be spared and allowed to live in that city of refuge. But it depended on motive, it depended on intent, whether or not that person would be killed for killing another human being. In the case of murder, their life was forfeit. They were to be terminated 
as a penalty for what they had done. And this is something that God putting in place as a deterrent that the cycle of violence that was experienced in Noah's generation and prior would not go unchecked. That God said, this time around, I'm going to be upfront about it. You ought to know better by now. You know the story of Cain and Abel. Grandpa Noah told you this, and he told you about the flood. And now you just need to know at the front during this time span that if you kill a fellow human, then your life is forfeit. So God giving that requirement and the reminder in verse 6 that God's saying that he made humans in his own image. So that life, human life, has a special sanctity. Notice the difference here. Allowed to kill the animals as long as you don't eat the blood. You kill a human on purpose, your life is forfeit. So there's a distinction. The animals were not made in God's image. So human life is sacred above that of the animals. And this price, this penalty, is established. So God very much stating the sanctity of human life. Something that today, that principle, for sure, should be continued. And one might could argue, this is a very strong argument, that capital punishment for murder is still appropriate today. This is something that God has always felt strongly about. And you could argue as to whether that should have changed after the cross. And I would say that it's true that a murderer could come to faith and find forgiveness for their sin. But keep in mind, this is a, a statement for how humans should be governed. And so as a societal deterrent, you can make the argument that it's just as appropriate as it's ever been. But what we have here is this is God giving the guidelines for how things are going to be post-flood. So we're not saying, you know, it would just be one thing to think about if you wanted to have a debate about capital punishment. But the fact is here, God is establishing it. And for all of Jewish life up until the days of Jesus, it was the law. It was the rule. And we say that it didn't necessarily prevent all murder, but it certainly sends a message and serves as a deterrent. And that is what God gave them in the entirety of the Old Testament. So going to Numbers chapter 35, and there's a lot of talk here uh, of these cities of refuge. And again, if you read the prior verses of Numbers 35, there's a lot of talk of here is, you know, hey, if, if you accidentally, you know, the, the axe flies off the handle and accidentally kills your friend, then run to the city of refuge and, uh, you know, and you, you they will keep you safe until the day of trial and you can explain it was an accident and, and then if, if it is judged that way, then you're going to be spared. But in verse 16, we see a different kind of situation described. Someone struck with an iron object, so he died. He's a murderer. That's an intentional strike with an iron object. The murderer shall be put to death. Verse 17, and if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Continuing in Numbers 35, verse 18, if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood himself 
shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. In other words, the, the family member who was avenging the one who was killed had the right to strike down that man on the spot. We will see in a moment that there is some restriction on that. But the fact is, if someone was a known murderer, and notice it didn't matter what type of object to use, stone, wood, iron, it, it wasn't the weapon. There was nothing in the Old Testament that said you're not allowed to have knives or swords or bows. It was all about, it wasn't about the object, it was about the intent to kill. You can kill somebody with a rock, but if you do it, your life is forfeit. So that is the thought here and a very strong statement throughout the Jewish law. It's a huge value that God has given to us for governing one another is that murder is simply never acceptable for any reason with any means. Now continuing to read in Numbers 35, we see if you push, push somebody, you even push somebody out of hatred or hurl something at him, lying in wait, so that he died. Again, there's intentionality. You did this on purpose. You, you, you did something to harm him, and if as a result he dies, then you're a murderer. And you could strike him with your hand, in verse 21, so that he died. And he who struck the blow will be put to death. Why? Because you're a murderer. So you kill somebody with your bare hands, you're still a murderer, and the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Do notice though, that God is just. And if we go down to verse 30, it says, anyone who kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. So two quick things. There must be multiple witnesses so that someone cannot just make up a story and then someone gets killed for something he didn't do. At least makes that more difficult and more unlikely. And the second thing is you cannot bribe your way out of a murder charge and avoid the punishment. So rich and poor alike both have to face justice. So we see a lot of wisdom in the way God has given this. And this is way back. Well, Numbers is in the Law of Moses. So this is where it gets coded up. But the principles of this are given to Noah right after the flood. And later on, Moses gives the full detail of how this should be handled in wisdom and with justice. And that's God's passion, that life would be sacred and that justice would be served to protect people from those who would intentionally kill them. So there's new requirements in this world as God has reset creation through the flood that there's established, there's deterrence and there's punishments to help, although man is wicked, to keep him in line from harming others and that life should be treated as sacred and even the life of animals to be respected. So don't eat the blood with the meat. That, by the way, is such a important part of Jewish life that was even mentioned in the book of Acts that even Gentile believers were not to eat meat with blood because that was extremely revolting to Jews who had grown up with the Mosaic law. And again, it was a sign of not respecting the, the life of creation. Nonetheless, it's still clear that human life is on a different tier. Human life is sacred, precious in God's sight, and 
worthy of capital punishment in God's view. So as we move on to verse 8 through 11, look at this next section as God now, having given some commands, establishes a covenant. So in verse 8, chapter 9, God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife on the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. So rain, as we know, is a regular appearance on the earth. It is a regular pattern that no longer do we depend on dew to water our plants, uh, but we actually have the rainfall to nourish the earth and all the plant life around us. And so for us, it's a very good thing, but, it would, but imagine how scary that next rainfall must have been after all the trauma they had been through and they had spent multiple months on the ark waiting for those waters to go down so that first thunderstorm had to be at first very scary to them but luckily god had given them this reassurance that this flood that they had just experienced was a one-time thing and in fact god is never again going to have a global flood that wipes out all animal life of course, we know that there's still sometimes localized flooding, but not anything on the scale and as destructive as what God had sent to punish wicked man. So there is a covenant here, and God is making this agreement. This is an unconditional promise. There will never be a flood. They didn't have to do anything to deserve that. They didn't even have to be good people. Even if the world became violent and wicked, God said, this is not the way I'm going to deal with it. We're going to do things differently this time around. Now, this is not to say that God is not going to send a world-ending judgment. He just isn't going to do it with water. He is, as we know from the books of 2 Peter and Revelation and other sources, going to send a fiery end to this world when, once again, it's time for God to send a global judgment. But we also see God's being extremely patient. And many, many more years have already passed between now and the flood than passed prior to the flood. So God, despite the sinfulness of man, is taking a very patient approach to us. However, he does reserve the right to judge the world. He's just going to do it differently and not with water. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But God is giving assurance to all those coming off the ark, the people and the animals. You don't have to worry about the rain anymore. I'm not going to destroy you that way. I'm not going to judge you that way. Now here in 2 Peter chapter 3 is one of the examples where we see that God is reserving his right to judge the world. Just not going to do it with water, but we do see some lessons here. And what should we learn from this? I think that we can learn that God was willing to judge the world with water, and so he is willing to do it again at the appropriate time 
So let's see what Peter had to say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and following. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what are we seeing here so far? We're seeing that people in this long time of God's patience and some people even doubt that a God created the world and that b God flooded the world people have forgotten this or deliberately blocked it out of their minds and so people go on doing evil kind of unaware kind of ignorant that a day of judgment is coming and God's already proven it, and the fact that God decided to take a very patient approach on this after hitting the reset button with Noah doesn't change the fact that we will answer for our sins, and there will be a day of judgment. But we are not sitting with water waiting to rush in on us, but we are waiting for a day when the heavens and earth will be actually destroyed by fire. And a new creation will replace this creation so god is the first time he washed it with water the next time he's going to burn it up and totally make a new creation so that is what we look for we and we see many times in the book of revelation such as revelation chapter 8 7 through 11 revelation 16 8 to 9 that we see fire brimstone coming down from heaven destroying part of the world we see um, the the chief architects of the evil of the last days, the, the beast and the dragon, thrown into a fiery pit. So we see judgment, just not in the form of water at this time. We continue reading in 2 Peter, picking up with verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And as a thousand years, or and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So as you see, what Peter is teaching us here is that God is being patient. He is going to destroy the world a second time, but he's being, as we said, extremely patient with the goal that as many people should repent and find forgiveness in Christ as possible until we finally reach the end and God says that's enough time you've had your chance so many many generations have come and gone even since Jesus went to the cross God continuing to be patient but he will not be patient forever 
the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, suddenly, like a thief in the night. And that is when God's global judgment will come for the second time in the form of fire. So new reassurances are given. After the trauma of surviving the flood and seeing their old world destroyed, God, again, he's already told them twice in the prior verses to go and multiply and fill the earth. And now he's saying, don't be afraid of the rain. I will never flood you again. And from there, we move on. To help reassure the new creation, the post-flood world, verse 12 god said this is the sign of the covenant i am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all future generations i have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth whenever i form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds i will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature Verse 15, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy, flood, flood destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. And we notice here, that God's not just making a covenant with Noah, but with, again, all of the creation that is restarting here. So Noah found grace and he saved him out of the old world into this new world, if you will. But all the creatures in the ark and all that follow are enjoying the benefits of this covenant. There will never again be a flood that destroys every creature. And the rainbow is given to us as a sign, the rainbow that so often appears after a rainstorm. And we understand some of the science of that is why that happens. We see all the, the same colors of light that come when we put light through a prism, coming through the, 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 the water vapor that appears after the, the, the rain and the way it goes through the clouds. And I forget the exact explanation for the phenomenon, but we've seen it and it's a beautiful thing. It's a symbol that God gave us to be a symbol of hope and a symbol of his patience. But we have to be careful because many have taken it um, and kind of stolen that sign. So God is reminding us, I care enough about sin that I was willing to flood the world, but I'm being patient with you this time around and I'm reserving that judgment. And what we really want to focus on is that God is now judging us individually more than globally. And it's going to be a matter of, kind of like with Noah, do we find favor with the Lord? So even though God is not destroying our world, perhaps in our generation, perhaps his patience will persist, he's still going to judge us individually. So there's reassurance, but there's a reminder that God judges sin. So there's a mixed message here, that God's making sure we know what he did, but that he's not going to do it again in the same way. And so for us to walk away with an idea that God doesn't judge sin is to kind of miss the message. But God is telling us he's going to give us every chance to live out our lives. 
And that means we have opportunity to be judged individually on the basis of our life and our sin and whether we are in his favor and grace or whether we have rejected his favor and grace. So that's part of this covenant. But overall, it's reassuring. Don't worry about being flooded out. That's not what I'm going to do. I don't do that anymore. We are operating under a different agreement, a different covenant, me and all future generations of the earth. So let's take a look here at the destruction in and judgment, the fiery judgment in Revelation chapter 20 at the end of the story as it's been told in the New Testament. And again, we understand that God has revealed his sovereignty, that he's in control. He's the creator. And when he decides enough is enough, that's enough. His grace, that he can rescue us out of that judgment if we respond accordingly in faith and obedience. And God is faithful to remember his covenant and to treat us with that opportunity for grace and with judgment and justice. And we see all of that. And again, the shift to, even though we saw a little bit with Noah, more of a shift to individual judgment here at the second global judgment is really an individual judgment. We see, although the world will be destroyed, we see people gathered and judged individually. Let's read about it here in Revelation 20, starting with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the world flees away from God's presence. It is gone. The earth and the heavens, there is only God's throne. And there's judgment by two books. The book of what people had done. And by those deeds, no one measures up. No one, by their actions, is righteous enough to stand before a holy God. But we fortunately see there is a second book, the book of life, that records those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ and are dependent on him for salvation and forgiveness. And anyone found in the book of life is exempt from the judgment for their sins and being thrown into the lake of fire, this just punishment for sinful man. The only escape is through the Lord Jesus recording your name in the book of life so we can accept jesus and his payment for our sins on the cross or we can pay for our own sins and we can be thrown into the lake of fire and not a temporary death but a permanent death a permanent judgment being in the same torment as the devil and his angels the, the fallen demons and all that oppose god 
So that is the individual choice that is presented for every man. There will be a global judgment, but our destination is individual. And that is how it is at the end of the story. So we go from the flood where God deals with creation and resets it and sends the message throughout the Old and New Testament, the path of redemption leads to the Messiah. And now in this day, with Jesus having already gone to the cross, our decision is very simple. Either we are in Christ and exempt from final judgment, or we are facing final judgment for our sins. And if we don't do something about that before our life ends, then we will be swept away just like those who get caught up in the flood, that wicked generation. However, it will be a fiery end that awaits us. And that is even after our death, right? Because the dead, great and small, were brought to God's throne. So eventually everyone gets judged together. And yet you see it's an individual judgment that God is treating each one justly. Something was kind of foreshadowed with those cities of refuge. There were those who were innocent and those who were murderers. And so God is very clear that he is providing individual justice to every man and woman on the earth. But he also, the scope is global, everyone will face that individual judgment. And so that is what God is building as he gives this covenant to Noah. And as he shows us the rainbow, it is both a sign of God's righteous judgment and wrath against sin and his faithfulness to provide a way of escape of his judgment and a way of redemption. And so some have stolen that sign to try and use it as an excuse for rebellion against God and for doing anything we want, however heinous. But in reality, it's a sign that the first judgment is over and we're working towards the second day of judgment. And there will be no excuse for rebellion or any kind of sin, sexual or otherwise, it will not be tolerated. And the, the end is doom for those who embrace sin and reject God. So new reminders are given here at the, as we finish the story of Genesis chapter 9. Reminders of God's grace and mercy, reminders of God's punishment against sin and our chance to individually find a right relationship with God and favor as Noah did rather than the destruction that the rest of his generation did. So as we wrap things up, people have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to steward the earth, to go and multiply and to flourish. We have the ability to eat meat. We still want to show respect for life, respect for blood that is shed and the sacrifice of animals for, that are killed for various reasons. But most of all, human life is sacred and we must treat it as precious. God has required that of us and Murder is one of those times. There are other times in the Old Testament where God sanctions capital punishment. We all are recipients of grace and the gift of life. God has given us this world full of nourishing rainfall. And no longer do we have to be afraid of being destroyed by a flood. 
He gave us the rainbow to remind us of his sovereignty, grace, and faithfulness. And let's heed that message. Our life persists, and we need to value it, understanding that we continue and enjoy this reality and this life because God has provided grace to us. He is patient, but not forever patient. Everyone will answer with individual judgment at the end of the age. And I hope that anyone listening to this lesson, that you're ready for that judgment, that you are in Christ, that you are fully dependent on him and not your actions to go to heaven, and that you have accepted and asked God to forgive you of your sins and place your faith in Christ. Future lessons ahead of us, chapter 11, 12, and 13, as we continue our study of the first half of the book of Genesis. So look for those episodes to be posted as we get to those in our study group.